Hello and welcome to the TTAC podcast. It is the Truth About Cars, TTAC.com or the TruthAboutCars.com. My name is Tim Healy. I'm the managing editor for the Truth About Cars, and I'm here with our news grinder, Matt Posky, and our rare rides and abandoned history expert, Corey Lewis. And today we're going to be talking the state of auto show media days, uh, Hummer charging, EV charging for the new EV Hummer, and a little bit of gas prices and oil prices, and then finally, our favorite cars from the year 2012, a decade ago. So we're going to start off with a quick discussion about the way auto shows are going, the way media days are, are changing at auto shows. We're going to try and keep this from being too inside baseball and, and too journalist only because no one cares about that unless you work in the industry. But there is, um, you know, there is sort of an effect on consumers. Me, just to kind of give the background, for a long time, media days were huge. The automakers would take Detroit, New York, Los Angeles, and for a long time, Chicago, although Chicago was probably the first one to sort of fade. Uh, they would take the media days to really kind of get all the spotlight on their new car launches, whether they were launching a concept car or a production car. And it wasn't that long ago. It was right around the time I started in, in this industry about 15 years ago or so that Chrysler had cattle walking through downtown Detroit in order to introduce, I believe it was a Ram. They had Jeeps driving through glass, all these multi-million dollar productions to try and get attention from the media and that attention would therefore go to consumers. And that has changed a lot. The last few um, auto show media days have been kind of slow. And it's not just because of COVID or, or, or anything like that, although I'm sure that plays a part. But uh, for example, I was at last week or last month's Detroit auto show uh, uh, and it was just, it was a one day media day and the amount of new car unveilings was, you can count on one hand. And uh, the biggest unveiling of all was the, the new Ford Mustang. And that was actually done off-site, a few blocks away from the convention center, on an event that was not exactly open to the public, but it was more open to the public than a media day would be. I, there was sort of a separate. There were sort of separate tiers. Uh, there was a for us media, we got wristbands to go to sit closer to the stage. But there was also a lot of Ford employees. I believe a gentleman sitting next to me was a Ford plant employee. And then there was a lot of Mustang owners and enthusiasts who got into the event as well. And there was a second tier where they probably couldn't see the stage as well, but they had like food trucks and that sort of thing. So, so those folks were still um, getting tickets to the event. So it was sort of open to the public. It was definitely more open than the media day would be. But my point is that, you know, the biggest event of the auto show took place not at the auto show. And I don't want to get too deep into any one particular auto show or, or inside baseball. And I, I have long thought that, for auto shows, consumers, you know, the, the auto show is still worthwhile for consumers, but the media days are slowly dying, I think. And I want to talk about why a little bit, but I also want to talk about what that means to the general industry. So I want to see what, what you two gentlemen think. Matt, uh, you want to go first? Sure. Um, I guess I'm going to preface everything I say with, uh, I want to agree with you that things were kind of already starting to slow down before COVID. Like COVID was the last, you know, strike of the wrench that that finished off the auto shows but like the last couple years they did seem smaller more kind of sparsely attended and i don't just mean the press days because like sometimes i would go with friends for the you know the commercial days where everyone everyone all the customers come and check out uh, all the new rides and it just kind of didn't seem it didn't seem as full they weren't spending as much money and i mean the obvious reason is everything's online now if you can focus your advertising directly to the people that are most prone to buy, 
why would you spend all the uh, extra money on these kind of like scattershot approaches to just be like, look, it's wild, pay attention. I don't know if this is sustainable long-term, but I do kind of feel like this would have happened um, whether or not uh, things got shut down because of COVID. And uh, I don't, I mean, I don't even care <laughs> anymore because uh, I was going to go to the D- Detroit show and then I saw the lineup and it was like, oh, it's really just the Mustang. And then you said before, what, like a handful of Jeep trims? Yeah, a handful of Jeep trims. Uh, I don't even remember off the top of my head. I think it was two things. And there was some talk right. about Jeep Recon, but I don't believe they had the Recon on site. It wasn't even there. Right. <laughs> Perfect. And even the Mustang wasn't really, it was new, but it wasn't all new. Right. Yeah. It, it's It's actually new looks but this platform underneath is the same so that's kind of before we throw it over to Corey to get his thoughts i, I want to add just one one or two things um to what you said from what i've heard anecdotally and from what i've seen at least here in chicago the consumer show still does still does pretty well i mean it, there has been you know covid obviously has affected attendance numbers uh, in the past three years but pre-covid it seemed like it was always doing well even if the media days weren't much to write home about. And then for Detroit, I had always, so Chicago will never, and even before COVID, they would never give attendance numbers to the public days. You would, but you would see on TV or you would see if you attended, that'd be pretty busy. Detroit used to do uh, numbers, I believe, or used to, used to give them out to the public. This year they declined to comment on that. They just, they declined to tell people Interesting. how many went to the public days that being said, Mark Phelan from the Detroit Free Press went to him on, on his own and wrote a column saying they were pretty busy and, and pretty jam-packed, especially the outdoor exhibits. So uh, from what I've heard, assuming Phelan is telling the truth, and of course it's possible Phelan went on the day when it was busy, and the next day it wasn't busy, you know. And, and the Detroit Auto Show that weekend had the Lions, had a home game, and the, the, the Tigers were also home, so that may have either helped or hurt attendance. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it could, it could help attendance by having people go after or before the games, or it could hurt by having people not go to the show. But my point is that it does sound like the public days do fairly well, even if the media days don't. So you're thinking it's pretty much it, it, the public. You don't think that's being uh, attendance is being affected all that much, but the usefulness for journalists is sort of no. Yeah. I mean, how much time did you lose? Uh, I mean, clearly it wasn't for it wasn't just for the journalists because how much time was spent on the president coming through? Like how much time did you have to spend off the floor while they got like shots of him walking around and talking to executives? He was on the floor. I didn't track it exactly. They stay, they told us they were going to close around, I think 10 or 10 30 in the morning and reopen uh, within 90 minutes or two hours. It was about two hours. Um, I tried to get a picture of him. I thought maybe he could run it on T-Tac or something like that. Could not get a picture because just could not see him. And the funniest thing was someone someone says, oh, I see him. He's that, he's that tall old guy with the white hair. I'm like, well, which one? Um, I did see Governor Whitmer uh, and a couple other famous politicians. I can't remember the names right now. But um, but it was about two hours. So, But, you know, having the president come, that was an inconvenience for journalists working. but And it was definitely a lost time. But it, it really... I don't know if it had anything to do with helping or hurting media days overall. I think it was just a one-time thing. I, I think, you know, what's really hurting media days is that the automakers can do an offsite on Vail uh, and put it online. And I think that was, that's what kind of uh, I, the last LA auto show before COVID f- 
Ford had me, I don't know if you guys remember, but I flew out Thursday before the show to Los Angeles to check out the Mach-E. So Ford had us do embargoed Mach-E stuff all, all, the, all Friday, the, day, the week before the show. They left Saturday to kind of be our own day to do whatever we wanted. Uh, I went for a drive in the Angels Crest Highway because that's what I do. Uh, Sunday, was a, a, we had a chance to drive the current Mustangs just to have a refresher course, basically, for those of us who hadn't driven certain trims or engines. And then Monday was another, was a, Sunday night was Mach-E official launch. Like that was the, the big launch, the embargo lifted, all that stuff. And Monday, I forget what they had us do. But my point is, we were out there. So the, the media day of the show was was Wednesday. We flew out the Thursday before, almost a full week. Right. Uh, yeah. All on Ford's dime. So even on the lower days, yeah. we would we would get like I mean everyone would at least spend like one night on site to you know make sure you got at least two days of coverage and hopefully saw everything. Yeah, yeah. And this this past Detroit Auto Show, I had planned to maybe leave that evening and and skip all the parties and just drive home, you know, to make the four hour drive. And and, and then Ford, you know, said, "Oh, the Mustang unveil, the official unveil is at you know eight fifteen local time." So that kind of ended that. And then we we found out. That Ford, even though they had given us some embargoed information, they had kept the dark horse, the high performance trim, a complete secret. They didn't mention that at all in the embargoed briefings. They they brought that out as a secret, which actually, quick sidetrack, I think that's the other reason why auto show media days are dying is because they give us all the information in advance. Well, they can't hide it on embargo. Yeah. Everything gets leaked. Like, and it's not just cars. Like, <laughs> I get on I get on the my phone first thing in the morning, and like always there's some article about a movie or a video game or a car that has been leaked like months ahead of schedule and it's yeah. everything you'd really yeah. want to know about it right and that's so there's no surprises but but yeah this this year's detroit auto show i ended up staying the second night because the mustang unveiling and then ford had another briefing for the super duty in the morning but uh so I did end up staying two nights, but I initially thought I'd be in and out real quick. And, you know, it's just it's just changing a lot. And I don't know if, uh, Corey, we've kind of been talking over you, and my apologies, but I don't know if you have any thoughts on this uh, issue and how it affects the industry. Uh, I was just thinking about how giving material to the journalists in advance, whether that's through intentionally providing it or via quote-unquote leak or whatever, um, I think the OEM can – ensure better coverage and kind of control the situation better than they can at the auto show. Um, I, was, I was thinking especially for journalists who um, have, a, have a schedule and they're waiting to go to this or that, or they might be distracted by what is the next thing that they're going to. Um, you get them off-site at an event that is just yours, and especially if it's the day before or what have you, um, you don't have to worry about that. Um, yeah, that's really true. The uh, the last auto show I went to was actually in Tokyo in 2019. Um, I happened to be there while the show was going on, and that was really something to see just because of the amount of people who went. Um, it was packed, and there was, there was not a lot of concepts. It was mostly just things that were in production already, but it seemed like a family thing that people uh, wanted to go and do. Spread out over several buildings, um, that you had to take a bus to get to some of them, so they were not all together. Um, and a lot of focus on aftermarket car parts as well. But so I think uh, maybe in other countries they're they're doing better on the consumer days than in the U.S. That's probably true because when I was kind of griping about how they felt smaller, like I was specifically referencing Detroit and New York, which are the ones I I, I go to I went to the most. 
Um, but when you hear about like Beijing, it's always like bigger and better, like every year. I don't know about Europe, but um, they seem to be kind of following a similar similar trajectory to us. But yeah, I mean, the Tokyo Auto Show is really cool because they always kind of have like a, a SEMA bend to it, which we, you know, we that doesn't happen on, on the auto shows here. Like it's its own thing. Yeah, and I will add too, to uh, what Corey was just saying, and Matt, since you lived in New York, you live in Michigan now, one thing that I, I uh, had heard kind of at a dinner a few years ago is that some of the smaller automakers, luxury automakers especially, will only, if they don't have a new car to launch, they'll only show up in markets where they sell well. So this particular PR rep, I won't say what brand he represented, but the brand is a luxury brand, foreign luxury brand. And he said they would do New York and Chicago because New York and Chicago, they sold well. This was probably five or six years ago. He said that, you know, that's why they'll come to those shows, but they might not do Detroit and they might not do LA if, if they weren't selling well in that market in that particular year. Okay. That makes sense. I mean, at the end of the day, like it, it is, it does all come down. I mean, presumably it all comes down to money and how much they, you know, what, what, what the return on their investment is. And they have new avenues now. Like, like you guys were saying earlier, like when I go to a press event, you know, they'll, they'll give me engineers to talk to. They will send PR reps to sweet talk me to hopefully give me the kind of information that they want me to write. Like they're trying to prime the pump to have the, the release be exactly, uh, you know, like they want. And then they give it to you and they, they drive those points home. And when you're at the auto show, you know, it's a free for all. Like I remember when um, GAC came to the auto show, I felt kind of bad for them because everyone was there kind of like scoffing at the car saying like, oh, look, they have fake exhaust ports. Like these are cheaply made and stuff like that. And and the people were, that were working were desperate to try to like tweak the narrative, be like, no, no, no. Like, you know, we're really, we're really moving along. We're really moving along. And there's no control at the auto show. I mean, there's much less control at the auto show, but at a private event, like you're kind of locked in with these people and, you know, they're feeding you and they're yeah. trying to make sure you're happy the whole time. And whether you realize it or not, you know, they are doing a little bit of psychological <laughs> warfare. Yeah. Well, they're just trying to control the, they're trying to control the um, message, but they're also, you know, they're also trying to own the media cycle. And the, when I brought the Ford example a little bit ago, the reason why Ford was doing that was because nobody else was going to launch a car Sunday night, three days before right, no the auto show. And, and obviously that was the Mach-E, which was already kind of, you know, getting a lot of attention just because of what it was. But if they had tried to do that during the auto show media days, they would have gotten buzzed for about half an hour. And then the next uh, embargo, excuse me, embargo would have lifted. And then, you know, the next car would have gotten buzzed. And even if they'd done it the night before, there would have been four or five other launches to compete against. And a lot of that stuff's embargoed and it's pre-written, so it hits the internet um, at a certain time. And then the, the other sites that didn't get the information or don't stress embargoes, I know we at TTAC tend to sometimes not worry about embargoes if they're late at night. You know, sometimes we cover the next day. You know, the, all of a sudden the next wave of stories hits as, as that information gets out there. So, so, you know, from the automaker's perspective, they want to control the narrative and they would rather have an off-site unveil Sometimes they'll do it at weird times. And another, another example I can think of is when the Chevy launched the, the current Corvette, the C8 Corvette, they didn't do it at an auto show. I, I thought they would do it in Detroit because of General Motors and because, you know, the Ren Center is literally a five-minute walk from the Detroit auto show, 10 minutes if it's, if it's you know, because if you're slow. 
And then they didn't do it in Detroit. They didn't do it. I thought, okay, maybe they'll do it in LA because sports cars and California roads. Didn't do it there. They didn't do it in Kentucky. You know, they could have done it where they built the car in Bowling Green. They, they did do it in California, but they did it independent of any auto show. They did it in the summertime. And the LA auto show is in November typically. And they did it in a, a, a big aircraft uh, hangar in the middle of nowhere in Orange County. Uh, and the, the main reason they did it, they flew us out there for just the night. And the main reason they did that was so they could get all the attention so the Corvette wouldn't be lost in the shuffle. And there's a secondary reason they could bring um, internals out. They could bring dealers and more executives and, and, and more employees out in a space right. that big. They couldn't do that at the auto show. But it's all about owning the media cycle. And I, I just, I wonder, you know. If the format a, even makes sense, right? Yeah. I, I just wonder if the media day makes sense. And I wonder... For us, for us journalists, we can we can complain and or whine or whatever, and if it makes our job harder, so what? No one no one cares. No one's going to feel sorry for us. But what I wonder is how it affects the, the car buyer, the car enthusiast, the people who read what we write and who and listen to the podcast. That's what I wonder how it's going to be. You know, will it will it affect the attendance of public days? Will it affect the way people shop for cars? The whole reason people go to public days is to not have to have a dealer salesperson harass them. And to avoid in, in Chicago and, and the old Detroit show before it moved to the summertime, also to get out of the cold weather, right? So I'm just I'm just really curious, um, you know, if the media day goes away and I don't, and those of us, and we don't travel to the auto shows, we don't travel a day early or we don't do that, that's fine. We'll adjust. No big deal. We'll, we'll still be going to events. But I wonder how it affects the consumer. And I wonder if you guys have any thoughts on that before we move on to our next segment. Hmm. I don't know. Like, I don't really think it's going to, as long as they still have like other venues, like the Toronto show is very consumer focused. Like I don't really know anybody who goes to the Toronto show that's a journalist, but it's still reasonably popular uh, among people who, who might buy some of these cars. So I think as long as there's something for them, like it'll be okay. Uh, I'm not going to pretend like it wasn't grueling to cover like a bunch of cars back to back when they had a lot of releases on oh, it's, it's auto show days. But um, I think people will be okay as long as they can, you know, read between the lines and people aren't just regurgitating, you know, press releases. But they need to have a way to, like, physically go look at these cars. Like, I don't believe you can truly understand any car unless you've, like, touched it, looked at it, really inspected it, and then driven it. Uh, I was just thinking for a lot of uh, people who don't live in major cities – um, who are going to have a more regional car show that their experience won't change much. Um, like the one here, everything there is all dealers anyway. So, I mean, you can go to the Cincinnati Auto Show, but you're going to be looking at a car that's there because of a dealer. So I, I don't think that it will change for a lot of the country um, where they would go to get their information. And with that, we will take a quick break, and we'll be back to talk about two sort of energy related and slightly geopolitical topics of kind of go over what's going on with hummer charging hummer ev charging and then talk a little bit about what opec and saudi arabia and russia have done in the past couple days to cut oil production and we'll be back on the t-tac podcast Welcome back to the T-Tech Podcast. We are talking about what the slow, the possible slow death of the Auto Show Media Day means for you, the consumer, as well as us, the journalists. And 
really it probably means more for you the consumer than for us even though we all like our free shrimp and then now we're going to move into a quick talk about hummer ev charging and what opec is doing with oil prices and then our final segment will wrap the day talking about our favorite cars from 10 years ago but let's go ahead and talk hummer and then uh, we'll talk about opec after that so matt you're working on an article for today about hummer ev charging can you explain to us first of all what's going on and second of all what your take is so earlier in the week the fast lane uh posted a very short like crudely edited video where they just kind of wanted to see how fast the Hummer could charge using like at-home charging solutions. And uh, it, the on a 120 volt outlet, it took four days to charge from, I think it was like four, five, six, seven percent, like under 10%. And hmm. it got picked up by tons of outlets and it was this big scandal. Uh, and then Breitbart picked it up and it just devolved into uh, different outlets kind of <laughs> framing the entire thing uh, based around like, you know, political allegiances and whether or not they're the EV or combustion faithful. And it was kind of funny until I realized I was like, oh, no, like nobody's giving like the full uh, story here, except uh, TFL did end up kind of uh, talking about it more. And they posted a video way earlier that have like had like a more uh, comprehensive like charging test on um, an early version of the Hummer. So um, <laughs> it, it, it was pretty sad. Uh, and like the big takeaway was it takes the Hummer EV four days to charge fully, which honestly isn't that surprising considering it has a 3,000 pound, 221 kilowatt hour battery, which is <laughs> humongous. It's like, I mean, the car itself is super ridiculous, and the battery is is no less so. But uh, in reality, the things are like you know much less uh, cut and dried than Breitbart or on the opposite side of things inside EVs, which ha- would have you believe. So I kind of looked into it. Most testing, I-, I looked at like probably like a half a dozen to a dozen uh, other tests of the Hummer. And on 124 volts, it absolutely does from a very low state, below 10% state of charge, it does take four days. Um, If you get the upgrade, which I think GM sells for 500 to 1,000 bucks to to do uh, 240 volts, uh, it cuts it down by less than half. So you could theoretically charge like a lower than 10% state of charge Hummer EV within like a day and some change, which isn't too bad. Um, But nobody was talking about all angles. They either talked about how slow it was or how fast it was using the 800-volt architecture. But then that didn't kind of address uh, some of its shortcomings, like it not being widely available. Um, It didn't really talk about how the Hummer is like one of the only cars that I can think of outside of the, I think the Taycan has, the Porsche Taycan has like the 800-volt charging capabilities. Um, I'm not sure, to be honest with you. I'm pretty sure. I think I can't think of, and I know that the Porsche does, but I don't. I can't think of too many other cars that do. But anyway, it's sort of miraculous. Like you can get like almost a hundred miles of charge on the Hummer if you can find a fast enough, you know, level three charger. But I don't know. But no one's thinking like long term. Like there's all these issues with like fast charging too that are like it, like there's a reason when you charge your phone up, it charges really fast at the beginning and then slows down. 
And the same is true with cars because you can't like keep exposing it to like such a heavy load without burning up the battery. Mm-hmm. And the more outlets I go to, the more I'm just like, nobody is talking about both aspects, the good and the bad. Like everyone who reads my articles or talks to me knows I'm not a huge fan of EVs. I think the Ionic is cool. I like how it looks. Uh, it seems well built. It It's fun. Um, it's, it's maybe not for me, but like I kind of get it. And the Hummer is like so wild. It's kind of hard to be mad at it. But we're just getting to a point where like the takes on these cars are so pro and con. Like the division is so wide that it's kind of sad. Like they're either going to, I don't want the electric cars to live or die based on, um, you know, people's sort of incorrect assumptions based off of like, you know, generalizations. Right. And I, I think it's doing a disservice to, uh, I don't know, everybody's audience to not uh, go deeper. And the sad thing is the Fastlane <laughs> covered all this stuff and gave a nice kind of thorough explanation. But literally every other outlet that picked it up covered it in some sort of hyper-biased way, either pro or con. Yeah, and that's something that's bothering me about EVs in general. And there was also the, the talk yesterday, I think it was yesterday, where the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, was accused of being emasculated because he drove an EV. And it's like, when I test an EV, I don't feel like less of a man or more of a man. I just feel like I'm driving a different kind of technology. Like, it has nothing to do with gender stereotypes. But I've, I've, I've always driven me crazy how both sides of the aisle, uh, the right kind of is like so anti-EV and kicking and screaming into the future, being dragged, kicking and screaming. Whereas the left is like, it's the only solution and it's really not. Um, the, the thing that to me is, you know, with EVs, they're just a technology and they've got pluses and minuses like anything else. And the whole idea is to reduce tailpipe emissions. But but all of us in this industry, no matter what our political leanings are, we just know that it's a fact that the mining of the materials for EVs and the production still creates pollution. The question is, will that pollution be reduced enough when EVs are mainstream to offset you know, you know what I mean? There'd be no tail, right. there'd be almost no tailpipe emissions. And I've heard a few people say that the, the eventual end game is not going to be EVs at all, but it might be hydrogen, which is a possibility. I know that technology is being, I know Toyota and Hyundai have invested in that. Have been, they've been fairly quiet about it in recent years, but before COVID there was definitely uh press attention given to both those companies with, with I hydrogen. Drove, I drove the Hyundai Nexo and it, so I, I didn't like, I didn't like it very much, but like it worked more or less like a regular car like filling up with hydrogen is you know just a couple extra steps like i I could see that working if but the infrastructure just like with evs only way worse so the infrastructure is not there like yeah all these things seem like they're like five six seven steps away from realistically being something that a lot of people are going to adopt whereas like evs are you know further down the path whether you like them or you think they're not it's never going to happen like they're further along and i think the the Hummer's like, even though it's ridiculous, it's architecture, some of the features, like there's a lot of cool things in this car. Like, I don't get it. Like, it's not for me, but like the fact that it, it's, it's got the crab walk and some of the stuff's really gimmicky. Like, it's neat to see GM kind of pushing the envelope, whether or not you like it. And I'm just really tired. And I write a lot of articles that kind of crap on EVs, but I always try to be like, keep in mind like you know this is the technology is like moving um it's it's changing i just get really tired of like the it's all good or all bad when that's not true yeah i i agree with that and i also get a little bit tired of the of just 
if you're if you're left wing, you take one position on EVs. If you're right wing, you take another. And it's like it's not supposed to be political. It's it's like wearing a bandaid when you bleed. You know, it's you don't wear a bandaid or not wear a bandaid because your political leanings. You wear a bandaid or you don't wear a bandaid because of how much blood you have. And that's kind of the. It, so that's a really weird, maybe not the best comparison, but it's well. Tragically, it it has been yeah. made political by everybody. Like, yeah, I mean, exactly. the Biden administration says we want to have uh, EVs uh, be like the the mainstream thing, and then in, in a decade, and then of course the other side says no way, Jose, and that encourages pushback. And I don't know, the typhoon kind of swirls round and round. I'm just like, man, can we just not? Like, can we just work on like making cars better? Like, yeah, exactly. And, and the, uh, the Hummer in particular is an interesting sort of case because it's not something that the traditional EV supporter is going to like because it's too right. big and too heavy and mm-hmm. it runs up with children and all that other stuff. Um, but then the the person who's against the EV is probably still not going to like it because it's got batteries in it. Sure. Yeah. yeah I kind of yeah. wonder how it's going to do. I kind of live by like a pretty fancy pants area here and you see a lot of, you know, uh, older guys driving big, very expensive pickups, but I've also seen a lot of electric vehicles out here, particularly the American made ones. And, um, it's kind of thrown me for a loop because it sort of poked some holes into some preconceived notions I had about like EV customers. Um, but then like where you see that they're kind of parked, it, a lot of the times you see like political signs and you're like, Oh, okay. I guess it does make a little more sense. And it is, it is sort of weird because the industry is clearly trying to make uh broaden the appeal of electric vehicles just by nature of picking uh, pickups and big SUVs to be like the next kind of phase of like rolling them out. But um, yeah, like Corey was saying, like, I don't know, like, how is this going to, are these going to be successful? Like, will these uh, work? Um, Maybe, but not if not if people aren't being like upfront with their real shortcomings and uh, and benefits too. Yeah, and, and again, and again, like um, I agree with you that you know people are politicizing something that really shouldn't be politicized. And I feel like you know again, we just need to see if the technology works or not. And just to kind of get away from the political aspect of it a bit and circle back to what you were saying to start this discussion, uh, the four day thing, I, I totally believe, and not just because it's the Hummer. I believe it with no, with almost any EV. I I don't have a level two charger in my condo building. So when I plug in here, I'm on, I think, either 120 or 220. And the little computers will tell you this will be charged in two days. It'll be charged for four days. I did that at my parents' house with an EV recently. I can't remember if it was the Ionique or uh, or maybe the Mercedes EQS. I've had both out there in the past couple months. But, um, you know, you, then you go to like a level two and it's like, okay, it'll be charged in five hours or six hours. Or maybe it's... I had the Hyundai Ionique, and I took it to a level two at an apartment building near near me. It was a charge point. I think it was $10 for five hours or something like that. So I let it sit there all afternoon, five and a half hours or whatever it was, and it got 120 miles of range-ish, something like that, more than enough to, to get it home to the press fleet. But, you know, it would have been another five or six hours to charge it fully to get it up to the max range. I would have yeah, that last overnight. 20%. That's yeah. one thing that no one really talks about. Like, they'll be like, oh, it's it's really fast to charge from like 10 to 80%. And then it's like, yeah, what about that last? Right. What about that last 20? Yeah. And now 11 hours of charging is no big deal. If you work in an office and come to a single family home and park it in your garage and you're not going out again that night, you plug in at schedule five or six o'clock and it's ready to go by six o'clock in the morning. 
but that's not going to work for everybody. So I don't know. There's to me, there's two separate issues here. There's there's one the there's politicizing technology that's not really meant to be political. It's just it is what it is. It's technology to, to and it has pluses and uh, you know has pros and cons. And then there's the idea of just the the infrastructure is not quite there with EVs yet. And then charging is still taking too long, even on fast chargers, unless you have a fairly set schedule and don't really go on long road trips. Or Well, if you do go on road trips, you can use Tesla's supercharger network. But if you don't go on too many road trips, then, it, you know, your, your routine is pretty, is pretty standard and set in your ways. You could sort of, if you live in a single family home and you have the same routine every day and can get, 10 to 12 hours of charging, I think EVs are a pretty good solution. If you live like me in a dense urban area where chargers don't work sometimes and where they're not always easy to find and where a lot of older apartment buildings and condo buildings don't offer them, it's going to be more of a hassle for, I don't know when it's going to change. I mean, hopefully soon, like, (laughs) I mean, even this EV thing, this Hummer EV thing was kind of like phase two because I don't know if you guys remembered, but uh, Hubie's Garage posted a video where he kind of bashed the Ford Lightning for having uh, like its range was like awful after he put on like a, a, a thousand pound trailer and then I oh, think yeah, it's bad a Model A in the back or something. So the whole thing was like three and a half thousand pounds and it was like less, it, it cut his range down by like two thirds and like that got picked up. Like there was even some jokes where they had like Alex Jones t- talking about he clearly hadn't watched the video. So like his information mm-hmm. was way off. Like he was like, the guy couldn't even, he couldn't even drive over uh, 25 miles an hour, which never happens in the video. But he right. was like, he was like losing it. And of course there's all these response pieces talking about like how great the EV is and how it, there's, there's nothing wrong. And you know, this, this is clearly a misrepresentation of the facts. And it's like, no, dude, like the video, it's funny because these vi- people release these testing videos that are usually pretty legit. And then they get picked up by major networks and like people with giant platforms. And then it's just, it just starts like falling apart afterwards. Yeah. I, I will say TL- TFL cars is known as being pretty legit. So I think your point is that. Nice testing, guys. Nice guys too. Yeah, they are. I think your point is that the testing is, is, is factually correct or, or, or you know, they're not lying about what they're seeing, but then partisans are taking it over and, and either, either defending if either defending EVs when they, you know, when there's clearly uh, a legitimate criticism or they're going after EVs and, and exaggerating the criticism. I, I think, I, I think I see what you're saying there. Right. Everyone assumes that there's some sort there. Everybody else is trying to play some sort of angle, which is often mm-hmm. not the, the case yeah. for a lot of these dudes that are doing the testing and reviewing the cars. Oh, that's how today's media can can be, especially the partisan side. And and it's funny, we're talking about EVs, but we're going to switch gears slightly, but go to a related topic. Oil production from OPEC, the I believe OPEC stands for Oil Producing and Exporting Countries, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, the I don't know what plus it's called the OPEC Plus consortium from now. I don't plus, know plus just is. means Russia. That's all the that's all the <laughs> okay. plus is is Russia. Okay. But with Saudi Arabia and Russia, kind of the two main drivers of that, have decided to cut. They're going to cut uh, production of crude oil over the next two. It's the biggest cuts in two years right. since the pandemic started. Um, and it's sort of there's some political aspect to it in the sense that America and Europe, most of Europe, have have objected to Russia invading Ukraine. And, and so they've kind of. 
as a bit of a way to punish Russia for its aggression, have sort of tried to, they want to kind of cap oil prices. I'm not sure if they've actually enacted the proposal or if it's just in the proposal stage, but they definitely want to cap Russian oil prices to prevent Russia from profiting too much uh, after a war that it created and started, which, by the way, war, of course, can on its own affect oil prices. So there's a production cut plan of about 2 million barrels per day, which would be about 2% of global production. But now that sounds pretty rough, but the some of the analysts and experts quoted the news the newspapers that I read. I read the New York Times on this. Uh, some of the analysts quoted basically said that it might be closer to more of a 1 million barrel cut, mainly because demand is already kind of weakened. Uh, not weekend, not like the weekend, but like weakened because um, the pandemic what's going on with the economy in general, uh, both in America and globally, uh, supply chain shortages, not being able to buy new cars, all that sort of stuff. There's this lower demand anyway for oil. or So this, this cut may not be as negative as it might sound uh, on, 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 the, you know, on the surface. And on top of that, even before this, the OPEC plus countries often fell short of their own production quotas. So the actual cut may really only, and in other words, they were already had kind of cuts, right? They said they were going to produce X amount of barrels and they didn't. So OPEC the cut, like, effectively look, the cuts might not be that much. Yeah. OPEC likes to sort of uh, shortchange just because it mean if, if, if there's never a surplus, it can always kind of charge two more. So like those shortfalls are, I think, consistent for a reason. Yeah, and then just, just to kind of throw one more little factoid in there before we kind of get into this, and I, I'm not going to discuss this too much because it goes beyond my pay grade, but the the Biden administration did respond by releasing 10 more million barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and I say 10 more because they, they had already, over the past six months, been releasing an extra 1 million barrels per day, and that was supposed to, to I believe, end at the end of October. It wasn't clear to me from the New York Times article if they meant, if they meant September or October. I think they meant October. So that was going to end. And now they're going to keep that going. So it remains to be seen whether, if and when and how much American gas prices may be affected. I've got a lot of kind of uh, unanswered questions about what the U.S. like leadership is really kind of getting out of this. Um, and I got some stats uh, about OPEC as well, what the actual reductions they're planning. Um, but to start with the Biden administration, I kind of don't get it. Like, I know they were talking about we got to cap oil prices, I think because uh, his popularity kind of didn't go up as gas prices went up. Um, mm-hmm. But this is also the guy that went into office talking about how important it is to get away from fossil fuels and to talk about how uh, he was going to ban a bunch of drilling. Like that was a big part of his like campaign promises was we're going to stop drilling. We're not going to do fracking, no new oil production. Um, and now he's kind of asking everyone else to do the opposite on like the global stage, which is weird. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't really, I can't pretend to understand what other people are thinking, but there is a, I don't know. There's sort of a gap between what the Biden administration was saying in 2020 and the start of 21 and now. Um, But as for OPEC, they don't really have any incentive not to do this. Like there's a lot of talk of, you know, people, you were talking about how, you know, the messaging is, you know, demand is going down, demand is going down. But like, if you look at what's going on in Europe, they're looking at 
record energy prices going into the winter, which I mean, has to mean demand is up. Like there's not going to be enough oil for them. Like, I mean, <laughs> Germany just had like all of the oil that it was getting from Russia, which it's energy dependent on, uh, closed, like Russia closed them down and then they were sabotaged or something. So, I mean, there's like an energy crisis happening in Europe and other parts of the world that it doesn't seem to be addressed. Um, meanwhile, I did some math. And um, so I'm looking at all the countries that agreed to do this voluntary uh, production reduction. That doesn't sound great. <laughs> this voluntary <laughs> reduction of production, but pumping less oil. And the weird thing is that even though Russia and uh, Saudi Arabia are the two biggest oil producers on the list, they're not scaling back quite as much as everybody else. But everybody's within sort of like four and like five percent versus uh, like 2022. Like that's what they're projecting. So like Angola is dropping production by 4.59 percent. Uh, Iraq is dropping by 4.73. And then Saudi Arabia is 4.78. Bahrain is 4.39. And Russia is 4.78. In fact, out of all all the countries that were like uh, like kind of relevant oil producers, uh, only Mexico was like, we're still going to pump the same amount of oil that we, we have been. So I just kind of... It just kind of makes me wonder, like, who has who's losing here? All these OPEC uh, nations are going to be able to charge more for their oil in a time where, as far as I can tell, m- at least some of the world is going to really want more oil. And then the United States government, who was kind of pushing to get everybody on the EV bandwagon pretty hard, is probably going to see higher gas prices overall. Like, I mean, they're, they're forecasting higher gas prices in the months ahead. Uh, so I don't know. I think it's bad optics for the Biden administration. Like, I don't think they want to look uh, like they're the ones that are uh, at fault here. So it is nice to be able to say like, oh, no, OPEC is the ones that are doing this. Russia is, you know, at war with Ukraine. But at the end result, it still kind of serves the you know the kind of new energy agenda whether or not you think that's good or bad i'm not saying it's good or bad i'm just saying um the only people who might lose would be american consumers who have to pay more Corey, what have you Corey? do you have any um any sort of thoughts on what's going on with opec uh i mean there's not much reason for them not to cut production to drive up their price i mean that's always going to be to their benefit um and then, like you were saying, the Biden administration can point out, oh, we're doing everything we can by releasing these barrels of oil. Um, and I did look up how much how much oil we have in our reserve presently. Um, as of September 23rd was 422.6 million barrels, and our capacity is 714 million barrels. So not half of it is gone yet, but we'll get there um, if they keep just releasing additional oil all the time. Right, right. All right, with that, we're going to move on to, we have one segment left, and we're going to have a little more fun. Talk, we're going to switch gears from the heavy subject like oil and Hummer EV charging and geopolitics and talk about our favorite cars from a decade ago. We'll be right back on the TTAC Podcast. 
Welcome back to the TSAC Podcast. We are rolling along here. We spent our day discussing the future of auto show media days and what it might mean for you, the consumer, more so than us, the journalist. And then uh, we've moved into Hummer EV charging and EV charging in general, and as well as the p- politicization, I believe I said that correctly, of EVs. And then also talked a little bit about what's going on with OPEC, Russia, Saudi Arabia, and oil production and pricing. And now we're going to finalize our day with a little more fun. Uh, the best cars from 2012, not best cars, our favorite cars from the year 2012. And when I was thinking about this and looking up what I looked at, what I liked back again 10 years ago, I realized that 10 years ago simultaneously feels like yesterday and like 100 years ago. So it's a very, very weird feeling whenever you think back to <laughs> what you were doing, you know, uh, that long ago. So for me, I'll, I'll kick us off. I only have two. Corey has four. Matt has one, but is very European flavored car. Uh, I'll kick it off. I actually have two, and I uh, one car is one that didn't really drive all that well, but I love the way it looked. And the other car is a specific trim of a specific car that was a blast to drive. So I'll start off with the. I believe it was the 2011 was the first model year, but so we're going 2012. The car hadn't changed much. The Hyundai Sonata of that time, and I I, uh, I drove that car um, more than a few times. I believe I was on the launch program for that. I drove several testers over the years over that generation. I think it was, I think they had two or three generate. It was a ref- there was a refresh not long after that, but that car when that car first came out, and it was either, I think it was 2010 for the 2011 model year, and I think the 2012 was pretty much the same car. Um, if I'm if I'm getting this wrong, then someone's going to yell at me. And that's fine. But the that car just it was the sleekest looking of the mid size sedans. And that was a time when the Accord looked awkward, and the Camry looked boring as it often does. But the Sonata looked really really cool. Unfortunately, uh, it didn't drive all that well. It was it was good enough in terms of ride and acceleration. It was competent on par with its competitors. But the Accord was still more fun to drive. The Camry was probably a better riding car. The Sonatas, at the time, the steering was just way too light and way too distant. And it was just not not engaging at all uh, in curvy roads. So that, so that was my favorite kind of mainstream car of the time. Just loved the way it looked. And I still do. It's, it's aged really well. You still see them in traffic once in a while. And they look really good. And, and unfortunately, they did the refresh. I believe that was 20. The calendar year was 2013, I think maybe 2012, I think it was 2013, but then the model year, I want to say it might've been 2014. I might have to go back and look that up, but the refresh, it looked a little bit wonky. didn't look quite as good, but it was more fun to drive. So I don't really know what was going on with with the Sonata there. The other car that really, really kind of strikes me as a favorite is not just the Ford Mustang, but the Ford Mustang Boss 302. Uh, That car was just a blast to drive. I never drove it on a track, but I heard anecdotally, and I read some reviews, that it was just awesome on the track. Uh, it looked really cool. It, and it, the, the thing I really love about that is, so one of my favorite classic cars is the late 60s, early 70s Mustang Boss 302, the 69 and 70 particular, the, the, you know, the, the window slats and the hatchback, all that stuff. Love that stuff. Yeah, those ones look really cool. Yeah, and they're worth like 30 grand now if you can find one. Um but when Ford brought that name back, they could have ruined it. They could have just said, oh, it's a trim package. But one thing Ford has done well with the Mustang over the past decade, maybe 15 years, is when they bring back an old name, 
they do it right. So the Boss 302 looked cool in 2012. It drove really well. And then they did the same thing with the Mach 1 recently. They did the same thing with the Bullet recently. When they bring back old names, they, they're they not necessarily 100% representative of what the cars were back in the 60s and 70s. But they're close enough, and they put enough effort into it that you don't feel shortchanged. So I, I really did enjoy the Boss 302. The version I drove may have actually been a, a different model year than 2012. But my understanding is that they were not so different. Uh, there were minor tweaks here and there, but they weren't so different that it would be a hugely different experience. And I just really, you know, I love that car. It looks cool and it was awesome to drive. And I'm, I hope someday to drive one on the track. And uh, it's your guys' turn now. I got a couple questions about the Mustang first because I can't, I remember I remember those Boss uh, Mustangs. Cause my dad my dad was like a he's a major Mustang guy. Like he owned a seventies uh, Mach One. We had the GT. We had a five and then eventually we had uh, the Cobra back in the early 2000s. So um, this was on his radar. And I remember we went to go look at one. And um, I think I remember, I just wanted you to confirm, like, didn't it, hit, didn't it have like a gauge cluster like added to the top? And it had like a little giant ball short throw like shifter. All right, it didn't I have believe- like a bunch of like kind of like super cool, like just little include. It was like basically a Mustang with a bit more power, but it had like a bunch of. Kind of the little shifter, accent. I remember. It was a short throw shifter. I also remember you could pop the hood and use a screwdriver to adjust the suspension settings. Um, oh, okay. I, I remember that you could do that. So that that I remember. I don't recall the gauges without looking it up off the top of my head. I'm Googling it right now as we speak. It looks like maybe they were optional. Uh, it doesn't seem like all of them have them, but there are some that have three little gauges in the center uh, at the top of the dashboard. Okay. I believe the press car I tested had it. I believe it's been so many years now uh, since then, but, and I also want to go back and add to the Sonata real quick before Matt chimes in with his picks and Corey does the same. I had actually forgotten that for 2012 Hyundai added more power with a turbo to that car. So they, mm-hmm. they definitely took one of the critiques of the 2011 model that it wasn't quite fun to drive and added some more power. I don't think it changed the rider handling at all, but it, it definitely, um, they definitely did a turbo power. So it was a little bit different in 2012. And that makes me like it all the more sleek and sleek, good looking car with turbo power. Sign me up. Yeah, they were cool. Uh, my choice is a lot, um, a little more wussy. It's not so, not so masculine. <laughs> uh, I picked the uh, 2012 Volkswagen GTI because I think that's when it um, hit its stride. But then after I picked this, because of the, uh, we talked about the year, I realized that we didn't actually get that car for another three years. <laughs> so uh, the Mark 7 didn't come uh, to our shores until 2015. But everywhere else uh, had the cool version of the GTI. I think this is the best uh, the best GTI ever made. Uh, I mean, it wasn't that much different than the previous generation. It still had the 2-liter turbocharged. But it was making a little more power, at, uh, you know, depending on which options and trim you got. Like... It was about 220, 158, six, somewhere, some even number, uh, foot-pounds of torque. And, um, you know, it was, it was sprightly and great to drive and, like, super practical. And everyone I knew who had one, like, loved them. Like, I, I super wanted one, but I never got it. I never – I kind of figured I'd never buy a Volkswagen. You know, I always thought the GTI was cool. But, um, yeah, I thought it was great, and I thought that was sort of the, 
the one that looked the best and the interior was good. The, the screen was integrated into the dashboard. And like, I know no one liked the piano black. That was like the big thing at the time, but, um, cause it's smudged and gets, it gets kind of greasy. But if you keep your interior clean, that's not a problem. I've never been a huge fan of piano black for that reason. I like the way it looks, but maintaining it is a pain in the butt. Yeah, it is. It is. You do have to polish it, but like, I mean, I keep the inside of my car cleaner than anything else I own. Like, even if it's a piece of garbage, like my house will, you know, it, I'll, I'll be on an episode of Hoarders and then mm-hmm. they'll walk over and be like, wow, look how nice the inside of this car is, though. And Corey, you had a whole bunch of cars. We we don't have a limit here. We don't have really any rules other than other than having it be as close to that model year as possible, at least the same platform. So Corey had, I believe you had four cars. I do. Um, I was going to respond to your uh, prior choices there. The uh, I think that that generation Sonata really had an interior that was not up to par with the competition. Yeah, I agree there. When I say it looked good, I'm talking about the exterior styling for sure. You just get in there and everything is just as cheap as possible and there's sharp edges and it feels hollow. But um, the uh, the GTI, I think, was a, was a good example of Volkswagen waiting too long to send product over to North America and then wondering why people don't buy the things that it brings over that are old. Right. Like uh, the, the tragic part about that car is like, I think that's when they hit their stride, but pretty much immediately after it came out, other more competitive cars were being released. So yeah. all of a sudden it's like, Oh, cause like when you look at the, the GTI now, you're like, Oh, it's not really anything special anymore. But back then it was, you know, it was just starting to be outclassed, and I, th- I think that was the that was the high watermark. Mm. Um, so my picks, uh, first first thing I thought of that I liked from that time was the Audi A7. Uh, it had come out a couple of years before um, that year in particular. There was a 3.0 V6 that was supercharged. Um, I had thought up until today that it was a turbocharged engine, but apparently not. The uh, CTS V wagon was near the end of its production at that time. Um, I think that's a standout from GM. Uh, that's such a though, cool car. It, even though it wasn't especially great at being a wagon, um, it was cool anyway. Um, I was going to add in the Focus ST. That was unveiled in 2012, but it didn't actually Ooh, arrive until car. 2013. So that one didn't apply. You were well, you were closer than I was, and I brought only one car. <laughs> one car this, this I think time. we allowed that. <laughs> the, uh, the second gen Lexus GS. 2012 and 2013 were the last availability of the second generation before they added the spindle grill on the front of it and made it really ugly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and similarly, 2012 was the last year on the third gen Toyota Avalon um, before they updated that and put a huge grill on it as well. So end of smaller grill era stuff. Yeah, yeah the, uh, this is making me unpopular with, with the T-Tech crowd, but I've never been a huge fan of the Avalon. They are great road trip cars. I love them for that, for that reason. If you, I've driven a couple uh, on longer drives, like two and a half hour, three hour drives. They're great for that. For anything else, not really a fan. Although they <laughs> like do have a lot of space. I feel like that's the ultimate test for a car. Like if you can spend in a long period of time and a lot of miles in it, that's the one. But I mean, what it, you just thought it was really boring kind of plane? Pretty much. Mostly boring. I mean, I, I don't expect a car like that to handle super well. It's not designed to. I don't expect it to be terribly fun to drive, uh, but I think I think I think you could probably do uh, a car that is both 
really comfortable for a long haul drive like that and interesting. You get maybe just nicer, nicer looks, nicer interior design, something like that. I think Toyota, Toyota being being conservative in a, in a small C conservative sense, not politically, but conservative in terms of design and approach to to risk. I think that's just the Avalon is a very Toyota car. It just it does everything well, it does everything right, but you also sort of forget you're driving it. If, if you know what I mean, you know, you're not, you don't, you don't. Uh, it doesn't stand out really. Right. There's nothing in it that's like, hey, like uh, my gauges are going to change the color when you get to a certain speed or it doesn't yeah, make exactly. it doesn't make any of the right noises. Yeah, well, I think I think that is a bit hard to get all of those things into a large front drive <laughs> yeah, car. A family, <laughs> family yeah, oriented front drive sedan. Is the Toyota anything? kind of does it with the Lexus CS250, which is also a little bit boring, but less boring. And that just could be luxury features uh, and me and me being a sucker for that. But I think the ES250 does what the Avalon does, but it's a little more interesting. I like a boring car. I think uh, I, I like something that's a little ridiculous and something that's very boring. And I, I feel like I always get lost in it, like middle ground where they try to do everything. But yeah, it's it's to, it's each his own. It's a matter of taste. The car that comes to mind when you talk about like a middle ground, the car, I don't think I ever drove one, but the car that that I really think of as like being interesting, but also being luxurious for a long haul would probably be the Continental that Lincoln had for a few years that no one ever bought. Uh, that car, at least on paper, looked like the Avalon, but interesting. Um, and then, and then if Lincoln had gotten the MKS right, I think that would have been a more interesting Avalon because it was really the MKS. I always thought was a good-looking car, but there was so many other problems with it and th- that you know it was a parts bin special and it didn't feel luxurious. But I think those two cars, and then Nissan's Maxima. That's the other. Uh, that's the other full-size four-door front-wheel drive car that I think of where. The Maxima, the Maxima is a good long haul car, but it's also a little bit fun to drive, and it's kind of interesting. Even, even this last generation, as the Maxima sort of goes off into the sunset, it still has some of that spirit left. I, I don't, I can't agree on the Maxima. I think by 2012, it was pretty much just dead in the water with the the CVT and. Oh yeah, it's not what it was, but it still has some of that spirit left. Yeah, it's no juke. <laughs> oh, that's a. We should do a topic maybe for next time. We should do. That's actually a good segment for maybe our next podcast. Would be quirky urban vehicles: Juke, XB, Nissan Cube, Cyan. Was it Cyan IQ? XA, I like the Cube. stuff like that. Yeah, we can. Yeah, we can talk about that. Maybe that'll be our next T-Tech podcast either later this month or next month. Talking about some. There aren't very many left on the road. I don't, I don't know if there's any of those vehicles that still... Kia Soul, I think, is the only one of those cars that is still off on the new car market. Yeah. But that would be a good conversation to have. Uh, talk about our favorite or in, and least favorite quirky urban runabouts. I'm game. So any, any final thoughts on our favorite cars from 10 years ago? Anything you guys forgot, wanted, wanted to add, uh, argue with? Pick apart my choice. Sorry, I didn't have a second car this time. I always feel like I picked oh. the most boring, obvious cars, um, and I did it again. And I didn't even bring two. Oh, that's okay. We can we can do it next time. Next time we'll probably be doing cars from five years ago, which I found it. I was actually surprised. I don't know if you guys had the same experience. I was a little surprised how little bit how little I remember from ten years ago. And I was like, that wasn't that long ago, but you know, just a lot has happened, and especially the automotive industry. 
uh, in the past, I think the last half decade. And then, you know, you start factoring in the, the wider world, the pandemic and the political craziness of the past five to six, seven years. And it's like, almost feels like before 2015 was just a different time. It feels a lot longer ago than it actually is. But I had a harder time. I had, I had a harder time remembering cars from 10 years ago than I thought I would. And as evidenced by the fact that I forgot that the 2012 Sonata got a turbo one year after introduction. So, and that it was terrible on the inside. According yes, to Corey. I did forget. I know Corey's was, right. I did forget is. about that. I, I like having Corey. Choice. I like having Corey on for uh, for this this uh, segment because yeah, he, he gives a lot of good pushback. Corey's got actually your car was garbage. <laughs> I but hate that, it. That being said, I agree with Corey on the inside part. It was the reason I picked the Sonata was the exterior styling. That was really yeah. basically it because it didn't drive all that well, and like Corey said, the interior wasn't that great. The interior, I thought, actually looked okay, but the material the material qualities were, were not good. So, and I also thought it stood out, because that was before Honda redid the Accord. Uh, and when Honda redid the Accord, it was much it was a much, much better car. But 2012, they were still on, it, on that, I believe it was the 2008. I believe 2012 was the last year of the 2008 generation of Accord that kind of bloated, wonky yeah, look. I hate Honda styling during the, like, the 2010s. Yeah, well, the 2012 Accord was better looking. It wasn't it wasn't head turning, but it was an improvement. And the current generation car, I still think looks pretty good, even though it's aging now. 2017 was the first year, and typically Honda's on a four to five year product cycle, and the 2022 Accord is basically the same looks. So I'm I'm guessing we'll see a new Accord. Probably no more manual transmissions, unfortunately, but we'll probably see a new Accord in the next year or two, depending on the craziness of this economy. They may as well just uh, go ahead and make the next one a hatchback. Yeah. It, near, it nearly is already with the way that it looks. That is for sure. All right. We're going to wrap things up here on the TTAC podcast. We'll be back very soon. Keep an eye out on the website for our next episode. That is TTAC.com, T-T-A-C.com, or the truth about cars.com. For Matt Posky and Corey Lewis, I am Tim Healy, and thank you for reading, thank you for listening, and we will see you next time.